Yeah, there we go. Um, yeah, I, I think one one thing we could talk about is the the God one, God two distinction from Paul Vanderclay. Right. Um, I saw with with your talk with with uh, Karen, you sort of said you you're on board with God one and you like the idea of God one, but you don't like the idea of God two. Um, so it's not like I don't like it. It's it's not a matter of liking. It's a matter of making sense out of it. And uh, to me, I have a hard time with making sense of what what that would be or you know. I would really, I mean, I do have some issues with with the very concept, actually. And I think I've talked uh, many times about this, but um, God one to me is the God of order. So, you know, it's, uh, it's it represents the laws of nature. Um, and some of these laws are relatively simple, like the laws of physics, although simple. <laughs> some people would say, you know, they are hard to, to understand, like quantum mechanics especially. Uh, but they are simple in that there are laws that apply to complicated systems, but not complex systems. When we talk about the human world and laws of human world, we're talking about the laws of complexity. And that's, that's a, these are very different kinds of laws. Is How that, do you distinguish? It's very much more things? difficult to, uh, to tease those out. Could you think, could you distinguish between complexity and complex? I think it's sort of like, um, it's the distinction sort of, one you can for the for the so the difference between complex and um, complicated They're complicated well you know in well, a, one you can, you terminology can you can use the you can use the two interchangeably I mean people you know I think that they when you say like they could say a car engine is is a complex thing but in the formal sense of complexity theory a car engine is not complex at all it's very simple. It's it's a mm -hmm. maybe for somebody that's not a car mechanic, you know, first time you open and tear it apart and then you want to put it back together, it's going to look very complicated to you if you don't have any training, right? Mm -hmm. It's very, it, it's simple in the sense that, you know, if you take at the car as a whole, when you push on the accelerator pedal, the response is going to be very predictable. Mm -hmm. No, or, or if you change gears or, I mean, you know, you, you can make it act in a very predictable way. Complex systems are systems that are made up typically of uh, very, very many interacting parts that are, um, that are controlled at the local level, and then their interaction as a whole is basically unpredictable by any means whatsoever. So this is essentially when you, when you start to bring in emergence, when you get into complexity, I think because yes, um, it seems like part of what you you were talking about Laplace in in the current discussion. He said um, he sort of thinks everything is just complicated, right? You can maybe that's one way of thinking about it. Everything is just complicated, and if you had in, enough, um, if you knew enough, you could sort of create this. Um, you could sort of figure out determinately how one thing leads to another. Do you think that's a fair way of thinking about it? Yeah, in a complicated system, you could, in theory, figure out, um, you know, the whole chain of event from, you know, in the past to, to the future. I mean, typically, you can represent a complicated system with a set of equations, you know, like in mathematical equations that determine, okay, if you do this action, this is going to be the outcome for certain. I mean, you can determine the outcome with a, 
Well, sometimes in some systems that are uh, complicated, you can't determine a, a exact outcome, but you can at least determine a probability distribution of potential outcomes with boundaries. Okay. You can say, am I, let's say you roll a die, all right? So, you, you know, one through six. So, you know, of course, in theory, you know, if you knew all the parameters at the start when you throw the die, you know, the theory is you could calculate which number is going to roll, you know, one through six. In practice, of course, what we end up doing is, well, we have probability distributions, you know, it's one-sixth chance of one and one-sixth chance of two and so on and so on. If you have two die, we can figure out the probabilities of various numbers. But we know we're never going to, if you have two die, two dice, you're never going to roll a 13, right? Because it's six and six is maximum, so 12. So you know there are some boundaries. In mm -hmm. systems, that's not the case. Sometimes you might be able, you know, there's all kinds of different complex systems. So, you know, some, some act differently than others. But in general, it's not possible to predict outcomes based on a simple for formulation, simple formula. Now you can, you just have to iterate the steps to derive like a future state of the system. You can't do it, but for each initial uh, set of initial conditions, you have to run the equations all the way to the time that you want to predict in the future. You can't do it in general. You have to do it for every single set. It's a different, potentially, you know, so, and then the results are nonlinear. Uh, the results can be, um, the results will um, jump from one. The, Hold on. Yeah. I don't know. She's out of the room. Well, it's Gail. Sorry. There's a kid here. All right. No, it's okay. So, uh, <laughs> the, um, yeah, so the, the results in the com complex systems are, are very, very unpredictable. And there are, there are no... Oh, something going on. <laughs> They're having a water fight. Oh, okay. So, kids. Um, so, yeah, you're saying the complex. So, and then, so you already mentioned it, but in certain complex systems, not all, but certain types of complex systems, you can have what's called emergence of certain properties that, um, that were not there uh, until a certain, you reach a certain level of complexity. Uh, but if you want very, very basic types of emergence, uh, you know, in, in, in relatively not complex, you can, you can get emergence in, in systems that are not really complex, actually. So you take, um, uh, and the, the typical example that physicists use is the concept of temperature. The temperature, the, the temperature of a single a proton or even a single atom doesn't make any any sense. You have to have a whole set of atoms interacting, moving around to actually um, get that you can call the temperature of a gas or of a solid. That um, that doesn't seem to be the same kind of emergence you're talking about when you're thinking of something like consciousness, because no, it's the yeah, but, but but it is it is in the sense, of course, consciousness is much, much more 
complicated enough. Like David Chalmers calls it. It's he's probably it's the only case that he knows of of what he calls a radical emergence. So that's it, it, it emerges. You know, the property of consciousness is radically different than the physical universe that it emerges from. Whereas temperature, yeah, radically different. It's still pretty easy to relate it to the behavior of the individual particles forming, let's say, a gas. In a I mean, couldn't you, couldn't you sort of, yeah, um, I'm going to show my ignorance, but couldn't you say something? Can we pause for a second? I guess. Sure. Just pause. Okay. Yeah, I was just saying, um, couldn't you sort of, when you're thinking about something like temperature, couldn't you sort of just say, okay, this particle interacts with this particle and just sort of form this cause and effect model? Um, yeah, but you have to have more than one particle, right? Like one yeah. particle does not have a temperature, but then you get many particles, you can get something called the temperature. Same thing with, same thing they say with the, with the taste of salt, right? So, you know, sodium chloride, it's just made of sodium atoms and the, you know, the, the, the molecule is made of sodium atoms and chloride, chlorine uh, atoms. Uh, and together they form what's called common salt, you know. And uh, so to us it has a, a, a salty taste, but sodium by itself and chlorine by, by itself does not have any salty taste whatsoever. Right? So in that sense, it's kind of an emerging property. The saltiness is an emerging property. I guess what, what maybe it's a very frozen. basic model, but when you talk to when you're talking about consciousness, of course, that's way more complicated and way more radical. But it's just you know these examples of the salt or the you know liquidity or temperature or you know the the other typical examples are uh, like the the ant hill. You know, a hundred ants cannot form an colony but um but that a certain point of a certain quantity of ants actually form a colony that can survive on its own the hundred ants themselves are going to die you know, mm -hmm. after a while they're just not going to be able to survive as a group of a hundred ants but you already level a number of ants and they will actually start forming actual you know an actual colony with an ant is is part of what you mean by emergent that that what has emerged is in some sense not physical? Well, it um, can be physical, but yeah, in, in some sense, most of the example, time, it, it, it in most of the time, that's correct. It cannot be, no longer be reduced to uh, the physical um, quantity, so it goes beyond the physical. So that's what, what people what you, get confused. So they think. Because it's beyond the physical, it's like completely separate from the physical. And that, uh, you know, John Verbeke keeps pointing this out. And he, I can't remember if he uses for his terminology, but the concept is you have this emergent property, which is no longer physical. But if you remove the physical, the, the, emer the emergent property will disappear. Oh, sure. Yep. Yeah. Right. So you still need that substrate for it to be there. So it doesn't become like some kind of supernatural um, thing that can stand on its own. Mm -hmm. The physical substrate um, to, to, um, to exist. 
I guess um, that's because you know that's that's the thing with with people who say, well, you can't reduce consciousness to the physical, which I agree, and so therefore there must be like a supernatural soul or you know, whatever you want to call it, a spirit or something that's extra-physical and can survive outside of the physical realm. And my thing, my point is no, uh, it is extra-physical because it's it emerges out of the interaction of physical particles. But if you remove the particles, then, you know, it, it'll go away. It, it sounds sort of like, um, you know, Vervek is saying, if you remove the physical, you get rid of the, the, the emergent thing. It's similar to the, the traditional view where the, the physical is dependent on the supernatural so that once you remove the supernatural, you can't have the physical. So the two are sort of interwoven in this way where um, you sort of can't have the physical world without, without God because it's the traditional view is that God is always sustaining the world and being. Um, but, but the other question I had is, <laughs> this is a weird quote, but what, what, is, what is the emergent property um, what is okay, stand by. okay yeah i mean what is the emergent property i mean what is it can i ask what it's made of can i ask how it exists um what is it metaphysically i mean if if reality is just physical and where does where does the emergent property exist what is it does do these questions make any sense yeah, they do, and it's not an easy question to answer because obviously, to me, consciousness seems to be, you know, coming from the interaction of the billions of neurons that we have in our brain, and uh, nobody exactly how it emerges. Nobody, nobody knows. They, they, there's a lot of speculation. Uh, some of it evol in, even involving uh, quantum mechanical um, properties of, you know. Of, of the well, certain portions, sub portions of the brain. Um, but uh, of course, the people that work in artificial intelligence for a long time, it, there's a lot of debate on this, but uh, many of them thought that if you just write the, the right code and you have enough computing power, um, then you should be able to create. Um, which is different than you know simply artificial intelligence. I mean, you can you can have intelligence in computers. You know, you can beat uh, grandmasters at chess games and things like that. That's it's a form of intelligence, but of course, it has nothing to do with consciousness. It doesn't mean the computer mm -hmm. is conscious. So, how to achieve consciousness? Nobody knows right now. All right, some people thought, well, you know, we have a. Uh, Parallel computers, and now you know there's even quantum computers now potential you know in the not too distant future. I mean, there are already some quantum computers, but they're pretty limited right now. Um, and then the, the neural networks, uh, all kinds of different ideas to try to make it work more like the brain look uh, appears to be working, or how the brain appears to be working. And uh, nobody's figured it out yet, yet, and I don't think we're very close at all to even figuring it out. Um, nobody, and even even if you can figure out like some kind of basic consciousness, 
nobody has a clue how you would, let's say, code a computer to be able to taste chocolate or to, um, to uh, actually have emotions like love or fear or something like that. It, nobody even has a beginning of the start of an inkling on how to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that um, that 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 experience is 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 what is the part that I I would sort of attribute to something beyond um, something beyond I guess is just the our experience of the world is something I don't see how we could ever possibly um, uh, reproduce. I just I just don't see that. But that could just be my limited. Yeah, it's uh, it's imaginable. I think it's possible, but it's not just writing more powerful code, and more powerful computers. There's a lot more to it than that. I don't. I, you know, I mean, you know, the the classic thing is that like in Star Trek, you have a data, or you know, that yeah, you have these artificial intelligence, and I think. With the right architecture, it might be possible. I don't. I don't think you could you could create an artificial intelligence without it um, having a sense of having having to survive somehow. I don't know. I'm kind of guessing here, but I think it would have to be a system that needs to interact with the world in a way that it can sustain itself. Um, but that's just pure speculation. You know, that's not my area of expertise. I've read a bit and I've listened to a bunch of videos, but honestly, people thought that it would be pretty close to, uh, you know, creating artificial consciousness, you know, and it, it, I don't think we're anywhere close. In fact, most people now in the uh, cognitive sciences and artificial intelligence, I think would agree with that, that it's nowhere close. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, um, from what I hear, like one of the big breakthroughs is, you know, you get this from Verveke's lectures, um, is that moving beyond this sort of, we just need to get the right code is this interaction between the machine and the environment and this yeah. mutual feedback loop is what's essential to moving um, artificial intelligence forward is, is just recognizing how embodied it is and how this mutual interaction between the the quote, organism and the environment is is, is essential. Um, yes, I agree with so, you. So how, this is a this is brings us a bit off track, but maybe we'll come back. But how does how does um how do you sort of think about technology and the future? Are you optimistic or do you or or pessimistic or do you have sort of you see <laughs> dystopia or utopia? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's again, complex systems are such a nature. It's, it's completely unpredictable. So, I, I mean, obviously, I am a little concerned. I said I'm not concerned in the you know near term. Uh, I'll probably be gone before this happens. But for yeah, <laughs> generation, um, you know, the possibility of uh, you know. Supposed singularity where computers become more intelligent than humans and sort of take over the world. Um, mm. I also think that's a lot farther out than people think. I, I don't see it happening anytime soon. Well, what about something like? Um, but it could happen someday. You know, it's possible. I I don't know. That's that's. I guess what? Yeah. 
<laughs> what what sort of creeps me out more? Yeah, no, it is. You know, some people, some smart people like, uh, you know, Elon Musk and a bunch of others are, are worried about it. Um, and it wouldn't be such a big deal, except that now everything is interconnected, you know, through the internet. So if a computer somewhere, you know, becomes uh, malevolent or something, it could easily figure out how to control a bunch of stuff in our lives, like, you know, power plants. And I mean, and I don't know how much interconnection, there is some interconnection, but, um, you know, how easy it would be to manipulate all that stuff to do some harm to humanity. Uh, I could see it. it. It could probably happen. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's possible. Mm -hmm. um, why a artificial intelligence would want to do that? What motivation would be? And apparently, you know, of course, there is a lot of concern about this. So some people, their entire job is trying to figure out what safety protocols you would have to put in there. Mm -hmm. The classic, the classic science fiction novel on that, of course, is I Robot by, you know, it's like Asimov. Yeah. But some people have debated that you know, his rules were not really adequate to uh, to make sure that artificial intelligence doesn't harm humans. So it's it's interesting. It's interesting there to think about um, the the role of imagination here, um, where you sort of can either bring the future into being or sort of predict the future and prepare yourself. So. Um, you know, something like, like science fiction or dystopian or utopian novels are important because they, they sort of show people what could be coming or what direction we could be headed down or what some potential futures are and, um, help prepare us for that. It's, it's an interesting, um, faculty we have, the imagination. And I wonder how, how you think about, something like the imagination with regards to reason. Oh, well, imagination is crucial for novelty. So, you know, you can't, with, with reason, you cannot, you cannot deduce novelty from past events for a reason. I mean, that's, uh, you know, you, you can, you can do it in math. You can, you can deduce theorems and stuff like that that you had not seen before, but they basically, they were all contained your premises, your, your axiom. In the real world, that's not the way it works. The imagination is precisely this thing that will spark new ideas. Uh, but you have to remember, though, or be conscious that uh, most of your ideas are going to be bad ideas. So without reason, you're doomed. <laughs> because, you know, <laughs> evolution is the same thing. In evolution, most mutations are going to be deadly. And then once in a while, there's one that actually improves. But... Um, most new ideas are bad ideas. And, and so sure. you're using as a filter your ideas through the filter of reason and figure out which ones actually might make sense. All right? Um, mm -hmm. Nature, bad ideas basically are sorted out by death. You know, the, the, the mutations that don't make it, the organism just dies and does not propagate its genes to the next generation. And that's, that weeds out. Uh, all those mutations that are beneficial compared to those and most most changes but it's the same thing so with human ideas the great thing is we don't have to die we can let our ideas die in our stead 
right? So that, that's a major, major advantage. For a reason, we can sort of think through the consequences of our ideas that we might have gotten through our imagination. And we can sort of, you know, deduce what the consequences would be or could be. It's not perfect, you know, we, we have limited rationality. Um, so actually the best is not to do it on your own, but to do it in a group. Mm. Rationality increases a lot. Because we're, we're just, as humans are terrible at criticizing themselves. Uh, so it's better to have a group where others will tell you, you know, your idea there, I don't think it's that great because I know they can explain it to you. you, know, you can, they can explain your, your, their reasoning, their reasons to you why they don't think it's great. And that's a really good check. And that's why as a group, we'll perform a lot better. Uh, and you could, you could think of that as an emergent, emergent property of the group is the rationality of the group as a whole is much higher than the sum total of each individual rationality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's maybe. why culture, that's why human culture is so important because the culture is the embodiment of um, no, the, the, the sum total of the knowledge that, that a, a society has uh, learned the hard way over generations and generations. And so that's why it's, it's very critical. You can't survive without culture. And even if you think of something like, like the, the scientific culture, where you have a community of people who uh, embody certain practices, certain ways of seeing, they critique each other, and yes. they, they have certain procedures and rituals, you could even say, that they follow. And yeah. in that sense, if you want to be provocative, you could say that scientific community is sort of like a religious community because they sort of hold each other accountable and participate in these um, rituals which give them a way of seeing the world. Uh, <laughs> um, but but maybe, that's maybe being provocative, but you sort of see my point where... Yeah, well, you the, can always say, yeah. Actually, but the rituals, though, are, you know, they're based on... on on reason i mean they're not they don't they're not like uh, arbitrary right so there is a reason to do things the way they do um there is a you know the, the kind of tests are admitted you no know, peer review and all these things uh, of course you can think of it as you know they, they they've evolved uh along uh, along the centuries to be more and more refined um mm -hmm. even that well I it has to be, right? I mean, uh, a part of, so, so I think what we've established here is that reason is, is communal and embodied in that sense, where part of what scientific reasoning is doing is, is um, reasoning within a community and then reasoning um, by doing certain practices. And I think this whole process is in, in constant motion because it's this agent arena relationship, right? It's mm -hmm. um, this interaction with the environment, new revelations feeds back into the system. So it's this, it gives you a much more dynamic, um, organic picture of, of, of rationality and knowledge than this sort of um, Cartesian um, uh, sort of subjective, 
inside your own head on paper type of thing. If you know, if you know what I'm getting. Yeah. At. Right. But now there's, there is a part, you know, there, there are some rational arguments that stand on their own. And that, that has to do with uh, self-referential nature of, of humanity. So, um, for example, it's not possible, this is, a, this is a truth about the world, it is not possible to argue against reason. Because to argue against reason, you have to use reason. So you, you would be you would be involved in a performative, what's called a performative contradiction, that you, you want, you'd be trying to use reason to disprove reason, which you just can't do. Well, you could start picking away at the language. Yeah, but that's, well, you can do all kinds of stuff. You can just you can say you deny a reason and you don't want to listen to reason. You know, you, you can, you can uh, even attack people violently, uh, you know, that, you know not, not be reasonable, but you cannot reason argue against reason. It's a contradiction. Well, I guess the uh, it just gets tricky because you have to define something like reason before you can make that statement. Um, uh, yeah. If you say there is there is no no reason is, is no such thing as reason. It's bad. It doesn't serve any purpose. We shouldn't listen to it. Okay. Yeah. And that I don't. You know. Or do you consider that a reason for not believing in reason? Or are you, are you just trying to blow smoke and just, you know, quickly mm -hmm. me into thinking something? <laughs> but if, so if you, you can't have reasons for arguing against reason. I mean, that makes sense, right? Because you, you'd, be, you'd be contradicting yourself. You're saying, I have this tool that's worthless, but I'm going to use it to prove it that it's worthless. Oh. I'm going to um, use a tool... I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna use this tool to prove that this tool I'm using is completely worthless. Well, uh, maybe that's have something to prove like that it's worthless. <laughs> so it it that that can't be done. It's the same thing as you know, it, and it sounds trivial, but it's not. You cannot deny that humans must act. We must act, and therefore we must choose. You know, mm -hmm. the, the mere fact, the mere act, the, the mere fact that you deny something is itself an action. So you can't deny that people are forced to act. And among the actions that we have to do are, as soon as you act, you have to make choices. It's completely undeniable. That's a truth about the real world, and, and you cannot deny it. It's a fact. Because again, if you deny it, you contradict yourself, because you just acted by denying it. What, what, what do you say to uh, Luther who says reason is a whore? Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> There's something to that, isn't there? Well, I mean, you know, and, uh, well, David Hume, of course, more famously, you know, said sort of the same thing, but in a more, you know, polite way, I suppose, you know, like reason is and ought to be uh, the slave of the passions. That's what David Hume said. Mm. Yeah, that's how it gets used today. So, so that's, uh, I, I completely disagree. That's false. You know. um, but, uh, but, you know, he's quoting his, the, you know, guillotine and all that, which is not true. It's just, he was just wrong. You know, I mean, philosophers, even great philosophers, he was a great philosopher, but great philosophers have said all kinds of wrong things in the past. 
But, um, uh, well, I guess you're sort of taking a view on reason because, I mean, uh, Paul, Paul Vanderclay, for example, has said that uh, he thinks reason is a coherent machine rather than a, a sort of correspondence thing. And I think, yeah, it, it's more... It's more about sort of maintaining a, a system. Yeah, yes, but that's true. But that's how you can figure out that some of your ideas are bad ideas because using reason, you can figure out they're not coherent. So you, uh, reason basically is the art of, you know, logic is identifying your idea to a certain point and you actually able to prove both A and not A. That means there is a contradiction and you, you know, that mm -hmm. original idea was wrong. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's the whole thing. Now, if in your head, you can live with both a and not a, like, you know, something like this shirt is red, but it's also blue at the same time. Well, then I can't help you because pretty much, you know, you're insane. So I, the discussion has to stop at that point. Right. I mean, that's what are. An, an irrational being. There are people that you know, are like that. They're, they're, you know, we, they, we call them irrational for a reason. They just, they are not able to see um, contradictions like this and, and, and take action on that. So, you know, typically they'll end up in a mental asylum or something. And, but that, you know, it's sad. I mean, I wish nobody was like that. And thankfully, those cases over here are rare. Most people want to be irrational, although I would agree with Jonathan Haidt that, you know, in practice, most people are pretty irrational. You know, they, they follow, and you, you, I don't know, you're familiar with Jonathan Haidt's uh, work and uh, the, the uh, metaphor of the elephant, you know, the emotional mm -hmm. and the writer, the rational writer, and the elephant yeah. is stronger. So the writer is pretty much there along for the ride and then comes up after the fact with post hoc, you know, rationalizing of what the elephant did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Either. I, mean, I, I agree to the extent that in practice, most people do act that way. That's true. But I think you can escape that. It's hard, it's not easy, but I think you can escape that mode of, of thinking. He would probably agree, but um, As a maybe fact, you think it's a bit easier than he does. Yeah, um, when you think about it, one of the things you can be passionate about is reason. So, mm -hmm. there you go. Um, um, so, so, yeah, I think you need both. You know, you need, you need for sure, you need imagination. And, you know, the, the, again, in, in, in popular culture, I guess the, the sort of like the, the archetype of this, Tension between reason and imagination, or the passions, is a uh, Star Trek. You know, yeah. Or Mr. Spock being the, you know, completely supposedly completely rational. Now we know he's not because he's half human, and even even a pure Vulcan still has emotion. They just said they were so suppressed, right? So they try to completely irrationally. And then on the other hand, you have like Dr. McCoy, who's like the very emotional, you know, not even but you know tends to let his passions drive them more than 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 reasoning and then in the middle you've got captain kirk who's kind of like you know aristotelian virtuous middle 
who kind of balances both sides, right? Which as humans, that's what we should have to do. We shouldn't be overly emotional and we can't be completely rational either. Um, Somehow uh, there's this can paradox. You, can, you, can, I can I put on pause? I need to get the cat out. He's meowing out there. <laughs> okay, sure. Yeah. Um, the paradox of um, hyper-rationality being irrational. Um, you know, Sprock isn't, isn't, isn't really rational uh, in some sense. He's actually irrational. I haven't watched Star Trek, but... Well... There's something irrational yes, about it. I, I mean, the problem with, you know, the problem with, with reason is that, uh, you know, in, if you want to use uh, Daniel Kahneman terms, it's, it's slow, uh, slow thinking as opposed to fast thinking. You know, his book, um, Thinking Fast and Slow, um, is, uh, you know, basically a reason is very good at weeding out uh, what John Verbeke would call the BS, you know, but uh, it takes a while for us to, to, cry, you know, to go through the motions of actually de deduction and figuring out if there's a contradiction. It's far, far from instantaneous. Like sometimes it can take days and days or years to try to mull over things that you're trying to reason about. Whereas emotions are, are necessary because they are, they're very fast reacting sometimes could be very dangerous, right? So you don't have time to reason your way. Now, in the case of Spock in Star Trek, somehow he can compute stuff like super fast in his head. So it kind of compensates for that, um, for this lack of, of emotion. Because for us, you know, uh, with, with reason the way it's slow, if uh, like Paul Van de Klee, you know, always talks about the, the tiger entering the room, you know, what are you going to do? Well, you better, <laughs> your emotions of fear and, you know, fight or flight, better take over like real quick because if you start just trying to you know reason about it uh yeah you'd probably be dead before you, you come to a conclusion so uh so there is a need for both for sure um, but uh, well yeah uh, another another strange thing with um with reason is i get this from from ian mcgillcrist in, in the master and his emissary he talks about um you know, the, the moment of insight, you know, the Eureka yes. moment that, that, that so many of the famous scientists have had were just at the snap of a finger, they suddenly know the answer to the problem. And it's not like they had to sit down and, and think through it. Um, somehow the process of thinking through it actually um, made it more difficult for them to see the solution. It was actually when they when they sort of stopped thinking about it, um, they somehow subconsciously came to the answer. Right. Yeah, so, that's, that's very true. Yeah. It so doesn't it, mean that there isn't some rational, you know, some, some I, I think a lot of it has to do with um, analogies and, you know, I know, I know when I'm thinking about stuff, I, I'll relate, I, th I think uh, relating different subjects, you know, going, going, um, some of my best insights have been, you know, when I apply a method that's used in one field in a completely different field. Oh. That gives me, you know, I'll say, hey, this could be just like this. Like in physics, it would be, you know, a, 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 to, um, to this. And let's see, let's see where it gets me. And 
but yeah, you're right. The, the, the phenomenon of insight, yeah, it's fascinating. Nobody knows exactly how, how it works. Um, part, of, uh, part of what's going on there, I suppose, is um, you can confuse slow thinking with bullshitting yourself, right? You, you're just caught in this, in this trap of thinking, which you yeah. can't get out of. And when you take this distance from it, that's how you can gain insight. Um, yes, so that, 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 sounds, that sounds right to me. You, know? you can overthink things sometimes. And then you get mm -hmm. into a threat where you can't think outside the box. You know, that's a cliche, you know, thinking outside the box. But that's very easy for people to do. I mean, that's why it's a, it's a cliche, but most cliches have truth to it, right? So they're based on some reality. And it's true that we easily get trapped into certain modes of thinking. And you know, even our words, our vocabulary kind of tends to trap us into uh, oh, yeah. thinking. I'm not a big fan of well, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. You know, we're basically trapped inside our language. I believe in the, in the weak version of that in the sense that, yeah, our vocabulary limits in many cases what we can think about. But it's not an absolute limit. Now, the, the strong Sapir War hypothesis is that we're completely trapped in our language and we can't get out of it. Uh, I disagree with that completely. I think it is. There's, there's, a, there's a lot to that. Again, if you connect this to the, the bullshitting thing, where you, you have this, this box or this language game within which you're thinking, and you maybe can, can do a lot from within this box, but you're constrained because you, you can't see other, you know, you can only see what your box lets you see. And so what you need is an insight that, that makes you notice that you're within this box and that there are stuff outside of your box and then you need yeah. an insight and to blow this. Um, yeah, Verveke talks about that a lot, you know, with the nine dot problem and, and, and so on and so, mm -hmm. so it's That was very good, you know, part of his lecture. Um, but that, that's exactly true. It also has to do with the frame problem and, and things like that. Also, that's, uh, you know, human psyche is very complicated, but I too, obviously I believe, you know, imagination and, and, uh, is, is very important insight. It's very mysterious in a way. Um, but on the other hand, uh, I'm not an intuitionist in the sense that I, you know, just because you have intuition doesn't make it the right thing. You, you still have to filter it through the filter of reason to try to make sure it's not. Now, sometimes if you don't have time, you have an intuition and you must act now, you don't necessarily have the time, you have to go with your gut instinct. But if you have the time, you should submit it to the filter of reason uh, and see if it really makes sense. So, you know, mm -hmm. just this looking inwards to, to find some kind of inner truth or something like this and say, no, I don't believe in that. I mean, you might find something, you might, but you shouldn't take it for granted that whatever you thought about uh, is necessarily some kind of deep truth or anything like that. It could be just BS. And the big, the best check on that is again, is, is your culture and the people around you. You know, if you start mm. in yourself and you can't catch yourself for a reason, uh, which is very hard to do. Uh, hopefully, people around you can help you do it. All right. So mm. very important. That's very important. That's why you know we have to help each other, and you know we all make a lot of mistakes. Uh, people to help us identify those mistakes. Um, 
Sometimes we learn more from their own mistakes than others' mistakes. That's just a human trait. You know, you can see a bunch of people make a mistake and you say, yeah, well, it just won't happen to me until it happens to you. And then you learn, you know, then you learn, then you learn mm. a lot more, you know. Participatory knowing. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just the way it is. Yeah. Participatory knowing. Hey, that's a, a t interesting topic. What do you think of uh, the four types of knowing from Verveke? Um Yeah, it's very, very interesting. Very, uh, I think it's true. Um, so in the um, in the current conversation, you said that truth is just propositional, but but I guess you would maybe distinguish between knowing and truth there. Um, yeah, right. I do, I do definitely do distinguish between the two. Truth is a is a is a uh, objective that uh, or you know something is true. The true is is an objective that applies to propositions. You know? You can't say like an object is not true. I mean, you, that makes no sense to me to say, say this, like this phone is true. What is that supposed to mean? Like, it means nothing. Right? I can say this is true that this is a phone. You know, so the, the sentence, this is a phone is true. But to say the actual phone itself is true. What does that tell me? Nothing. Yeah. You could maybe say that um, uh, an existence is true. So the phone can be useful. Yeah, I know, but see, people use the the word true in different ways, and I, I you know, we we instinctively understand what they mean, but uh, we have to be very, very careful because of this, um, because ultimately, true or false are things that apply to the descriptive function of language, not even just language propositions, the descriptive propositions, like in in the argument, you know, the, uh, the human language has well, you. Can, you know, the model I have, the human language, has uh, four four um, functions to it. So, um, you know, at the bottom level, um, you have a, a, a expressive function. So, like when you say you're in pain, you can you can like even animals, you know, they'll they'll yell for you. So you can see that that's a kind of form of language that that's meant to express an inner state of of affairs, right? So either pain or joy or something. And the animals have them also, not just humans. Uh, the next level, which is a signaling uh, thing, and, and animals have this too. So let's say some birds, you know, if they see a danger, they'll start chirping in a certain way and that expresses, no, to it tells other birds around them that, hey, there is danger coming or something like that. And also uh, um, that's a signaling um, function of language. Then at the human level, you start having on uh, the descriptive function. So you can actually describe things and events to other people around you. And that's where true or false, you know, your description is either true or false. So you're, and uh, it doesn't only mean you're lying. It could be simply that you're mistaken if it's false, you not necessarily mean it to be false. If you, if you actually mean it to be false, then you are a liar, you know, you're lying there. And it, it could be good reasons to do that too. You know, so that is not condemnation, but, but you could, you could simply be mistaken. And then there is the fourth function of language, the argumentative function. Obviously, it's tricky in the human world. Argumentative function that apply to that are valid or invalid arguments, right? So that's not, we're not talk, no longer talking about description now. We're talking about actual rationality and argument and, and arguing for the validity or invalidity of a certain proposition, right? So. 
So that, these are the four, with it Carl, that's, that's what Carl Popper distinguished those four, and he's not the only one that I think is pretty common, but uh, the true and false are at that plural level. So um, like an argument, you don't say the argument is true or it's false, you say your argument are invalid, right? So, so it's, it's uh, if you say it's true, yeah, people might say that, but we, we know what you mean. You already mean it's valid or invalid, true or false. So, mm -hmm. um, so I'm very careful about this. Now, I'm, you know, you could say, for example, um, things things actually things are not true or false. They are real or unreal, right? Like something might exist or not exist, or or you know, that's the way I would talk about it. I, I wouldn't say an object is true. I would say it's real. Yeah, but you could say, for example, you are not being true to yourself. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there are expressions like that. That that. Um, Which I think. Um, so here's a here's something that hangs me up a bit is. So you have you have sort of the physical substructure, and then you have the emergence, um, which you could call consciousness, and it seems like this propositional truth doesn't really get at this consciousness level. Um, because I think I think you need to start saying things like um, you're being true to yourself. I think you, you get into the the sort of ethical yeah. um, domain of truth. The, you understand um, when you use true that, that way, it's just a metaphor. It's not literally, you're not being true to yourself. It's a metaphor. Of course, you can use it in that way, but... Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, I don't know if it's... Mm, it just seems like a, a different form of truth. Well, we, we use true in different ways, like... Um, you know, oh, like, it gets actually you know, fudgy if because... Something, if something is straight, you know, say it's true. I mean, there is there is a variety of ways, uh, but... But and there are different kinds of in truth. In the sense that, uh, let's say, the debate on truth between um, Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris, you know, that, that, that's in that sense is what I mean by true, false, you know, that, that in, in, the, in the strict sense of the term. Of course, the word true is being used in different ways metaphorically, um, you know, for a variety of, but that happens to a lot of words, you know, that's very common. So you have to be a little careful. But yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, we all, we all know what that means, being true to yourself. Um, but basically, it's, it's, it's a sort of, a, of equivalent to saying that you should not believe false propositions about yourself or something like that, you know? Well, it's, it's more like you shouldn't... Um, you shouldn't um, you shouldn't act in a way that's not in accordance to the yes. propositions you can claim to believe. Right. So there's yeah. sort of yeah. this acting out of what you hold to be true. That's yes. that's a correct. That's so so in that in that sense, action can be true or false. Well, so again, yeah, I wouldn't really want to use the language of I false. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty careful because. You, you get into trouble when you when you're going to me it's more of a met, metaphoric you know more than anything else so you have to be very careful how you use this 
But um, yeah, I mean, in a sense, I, I agree. No, so you, you, being true to yourself is acting in accordance with what you your most what you believe beliefs tell you to do, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, but I have to be you know I have to be careful of that too because you know again yeah. I don't trust, I don't necessarily trust my inner beliefs all the time. You know, you have to be very, very careful. Uh, people, again, are very prone to confirmation bias, to all kinds of biases. I mean, we, we have so many biases. Now, as soon as you become conscious of the fact that you have all these biases, it kind of decreases the power of these biases to some extent, but not completely, particularly in the heat of the moment, right? If you have time to reflect on a situation, then maybe you can say, you know, yeah, I, I tend to uh, have this bias, so I need to be careful about judging the situation because, um, you know, my past experience might bias me towards, you know, thinking this or that. So if I have to mm -hmm. think about it, yes. But in the heat of the moment, you know, if you don't have time to think about it, you know, your biases will probably show up again and again and again. Right? So you have to be, you have to be careful of that. And that's why, you know, in, in a way, a religious um, rules and, and culture helps you to deal with that. Because it gives you rules you are always in the back of your mind and are ready to sort of be there to, to kind of quiet your initial instincts about something, right? Mm -hmm. Hopefully, I mean, it's again, it's not a guarantee, but I think it's yeah. part of the purpose of injunctions that you find in religions about not doing this or not doing this, treating others like you would, you know, have yourself, uh, you would have them treat you, you know, the golden rule. I prefer the silver rule myself, but uh, what's that? Well, the, the golden. The golden rule is do unto others as you would have done unto you. The silver rule is do not do unto others as you would not have them do unto you. See, that's mm. that's the norm for respect. So you respect people's boundaries and you don't infringe on them. You don't you don't um, you know if you don't want them to bother you, then don't bother them, kind of thing. Uh, do unto you as to you would have them do on or uh, do on on. Uh, onto you, mm -hmm. onto others like that. It, the golden rule is more of a rule that that speaks to to loving other people, right? Because you, you know, I mean, if you want others do to you, uh, what do you want? That you want you want them to give you things, or I mean, I don't know what you know. Every everybody's going to be separate, but obviously, um, it's, it's a little different because you really can't treat everybody like this, right? I mean, I want my family to treat me in a certain way, but I certainly don't expect the entire rest of the world to treat me that way. They can't possibly love me like family, right? So do unto you, well, do unto others as you would have done unto you. Well, yeah, I expect my family to do unto me certain things that I don't expect people, you know, far away from me, even in my community that are not my relatives, you do to me so that's it's a very different standard and um, mm -hmm. um I, uh, I guess um part of part of it uh, there is um you're 
sort of radical venturing of love to other people um, can have some pretty amazing consequences for them and for you. For for example, yes. I was listening to, to Sam Harris talk to a former neo-Nazi and one of the things that apparently made him stop being a neo-Nazi is just the empathy he received from from other people that that was completely undeserved. So it's it's that it's it's sort of that that allowed him to break out of his his sort of hating frame and stop sure. BSing himself. So in some some particular cases, you can help people like that with love, but it's it's not possible for you to help the entire world, like to solve everybody's problems. There are seven billion people on Earth, so it's just physically not possible. But if you if you encounter a person face to face and they need help, you should help them if you can. But you can't expect nobody can expect you to do this for everybody that you meet in the street. All right, it's just not physically possible. You still there? Okay, wrong. Well, um, I didn't want to talk about the God one, God two thing because I have an idea about how to think about it. Maybe that yeah, I'd like to, to run past you. Sure. Um, so maybe you could think of um, God one as physical law, and then God too as the natural law or the ethical code. Um, and then you could sort of see by analogy why, um, you know, human beings as emergent or conscious beings um, have sort of the, the freedom, as you said, to either choose to follow the, the natural law or choose not to follow it. Um, you could see by analogy how God could have the freedom to choose to follow the physical law and not um, and and not follow it, um, yeah. Or maybe uh, another another way of thinking about it would be um, God one as the physical layer and God two as the emergent layer. Um, so I think I think one way of that makes some sense. But uh, you know, my my problem with God one and God well. To me, God one represents both the you know what what you call the physical laws and the natural law. So it's uh, oh. fitting the normative law. It's both, right? So um, we can't escape those laws. Now, the, we even for normative law, right? So let's the, the the thing is, we humans can make decisions. So we can we can say you can, you come to a fork in the road, and you have to make a decision. You know, am I going to do good or am I going to do evil or I don't. Or maybe it's two types of goods, but one may end up being better than the other. <clears throat> so you have to make a decision. And if it's a, if it's a moral dilemma, uh, then, you know, it's up to you to follow the moral rules or not. Uh, but you won't escape the consequences. That's what I mean by you can't escape the, the natural law. Uh, you, can, uh. You, can, you can choose to not do the moral thing, but you will suffer the consequences. Right now, the the problem is, and this is Jordan Peterson talks about this or alludes to it, is that it's true that in one lifetime, some people can get away with being immoral and basically not suffer for it. But what is you know, 
the idea is that their descendants and their group and their you know their tribe and their nation are there's gonna there's gonna be bad consequences downstream. Be mm. somewhere somehow if you do evil. That's, That's a good point, right? So most of the time, you know, people do suffer in their lifetime for doing evil. Uh, occasionally, they can get away with it. That's true, and that's why the idea of God, you know, of of inferno versus heaven, and you know, I can see that as a regulatory um, way to make people be moral. I I, I get it. Um, yeah. So it's hard for me to, to really actually believe literally in those things. I, you know, but but I get the idea, obviously, because some people might think that yeah, they can get away with with murder, you know, literally or you know, figuratively, one or the other, and that you know, it's no big deal uh, because they'll they'll get away with it. So it's like if they think nobody's watching, so to speak, uh, then it's okay. But, you know, in our society, in our culture, we try to inculcate in people the fact that, well, uh, you know, for one thing, there are laws. So, you know, if you, if, you do the, if you do something immoral, you'll be, you know, you'll be castigated, castigated by your own uh, group, your society, even maybe your own family, maybe. You will be punished by the law and so on and so on and so on. So there are consequences, you know, to follow. Mm-hmm. But regardless, um, you know, that's, that's the idea that I'm a very much a consequentialist um, you know, in that sense that uh, my definition of what's good and bad is that eventually, you know, good has good consequences, bad has bad consequences. And but the problem is people always think, well, bad consequences like right now. No, sometimes it can take years, decades, generations for the bad to, to occur. And that's, that's the problem. That's why Jordan Peterson is right on with this. It's, uh, you know, that uh, our, his idea of, you know, when, when he was listing his potential ideas for what God represents, it's like, uh, you know, represents what happens over periods of time that we can't even, you know, fathom us in our, you know, limited time that we have on earth. Um, mm. You know, that these, these ideas, these archetypes, these these rules are way, way beyond what anybody can figure out in their own lifetime. And that's why yeah. tradition and culture is very important to me. It's not like it's it's sacred in the sense that you can never um, you can never question you know something in, in in your own culture, and you can you know ask, hey, maybe we could do this a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Cannot reject your culture entirely. That's that's like suicide. Mm-hmm. We saw, sure. we saw that in the 20th century. Horrible, horrible uh, catastrophes: communism, Nazism, fascism. Um, these were these were cultures that basically okay, let's start from scratch. You know, let's reject everything that we know and build a new world on new foundations. Uh, Forget everything that our ancestors taught us. Uh, it's no good. We know better. And we're going to build this brave new world that uh, is based basically on complete, well, in the case of the communists, you know, basically you know, 
why in their mind it was a completely irrational thing to do. You know, it was scientific materialism. So to them, it was it was really irrational. It was the best way to organize society. Um, in the case of the Nazis and the fascists, it was a little different. Uh, you know, it, it was it was based on a, an idea of you know racial superiority and you know. But again, to them, it was what the science said. You know? So in that yeah, sense, yeah. rationals to them it seemed rational, right? It was a specific way. It was the you know the superior race must win because that's the Darwinian. You know, it was a it was their reading of of Darwin's uh, you know. As, theory of evolution in their in their view that's what it meant that's not at all what it means but you know that's that's the idea they had yeah so god one and god two so god two to me here here's the problem i have with the idea of god two is that if you have a, a, a an agent god that can intervene at any time in, you know basically countermand the the laws of of uh, physics and the laws of you know, the natural law anytime he wants. Um, of course, if he only does it on a very rare occasion, I guess we can live with it. But if it's too often, then, you know, we humans need order in our life. We need to be, we need to have predictability in our life. Right? Hey. We need to be able to <laughs> sort of figure out what's going to happen, that the sun's going to rise tomorrow and that, uh, that uh, you know the seasons are gonna are, are gonna you know follow. I mean, so, uh, so we know when to, when to plant crops. And so we, if we have this world where on a whim, uh, you know, let's replace spring with another winter. You know, let's prolong winter by six months, um, just because um, it, it's hard to live with that. So well, uh, here's an objection. Yes, um, go ahead. I think I think what you want is a is a complicated God, but not a complex God. <laughs> Maybe. Um, and, and I think part of what God too is all about is he, he um, it's, it's sort of uh, so, something like um, a, a relationship you have with another person. You can never completely map it out and, and um, approach it with this, this um, what Paul Vander Clay calls the, the spirit of geometry sort of need to approach it with the spirit of finesse and you have to take these risks. You have to reach the fork in the road and then decide one option instead of the other um, and, and never really having any certainty about which option is better. And so I think God too is, is more about the, the lived experience of real life where you have to venture and take risks and and, and walk out into into the unknown and maybe you could think about it sort of as the walled city uh which is maybe god one and then the the outside unknown which is god two and then this venture out is what is one way of thinking about it expands the yeah. the known so that's a pretty good way of putting it i you know that's good um so, so. you're making sense <laughs> you know it's uh yeah I mean, again, I'll think about it. That's why I don't, I, I know I leave it open to possibility, but uh, so far, you know, and I'm not the only one. There's, you know, many other people in my situation that you know, are just, I don't know. I don't know. It's, 
you know, I'm, I'm pretty, I have a pretty rational mind and it's very difficult mm -hmm. to let go of that. It's, uh, but on the other hand, um, you know, I'll say I'm not an anti-theist. In fact, uh, on a Thursday, I'm talking to uh, Adam Friended. Adam, yeah, Adam Friended. Uh, I don't know what time yet, but uh, I'm supposed to do a video with him on Thursday. Sounds good. I don't know when he'll post it though, or if he'll post it. He may, you know, who knows? It depends how it goes. But I, I think, it'll, you know, we agree on a lot of stuff, obviously, from what I've seen. So we'll see. We're going to talk and, and maybe we'll disagree on a few things. But it seems to me that um, and maybe I'm a little bit more open to the idea of God to possibly than he is. But um, uh, on the other hand, we do have a lot in common. So uh, we'll see how that goes. But Well, I mean, when you say you, you get the idea of God one, but you're a naturalist, does that mean you sort of like the idea symbolically, um, but, but you're sort of not willing to, to say there's enough evidence to, to believe in it or something like that? Or oh, God one, if you, if you believe it as a symbol for the natural law and the laws of the universe, including the laws of complexity in the human world and the human interaction, yeah, I believe in that. But see, that's different than, than God, an agent, right? That actually cares okay. about me personally, right? The laws of physics don't care about me. You know, uh -huh. if I jump from the Empire State Building, I'll crash and, you know, they, they don't care that I live or die. They just act on me. Same thing with the, even the laws of moral. Like I told you, you know, my view is if I act immorally, uh, you know, I'll probably will pay a price. If, if I don't pay a price, my children will pay a price. If they, if they, if they don't pay a price, their, their, ch their children will pay a price. Somebody will pay a price at some point. Mm -hmm. so, um, the, so, so it's a law. You know, it's, it's, just, it's just the way it is. Uh, you can't do anything about it. I mean, that's, uh, you, you are subject to these laws. And, um, and that, you know, but of course, the laws of the you know, of complexity are much more difficult to figure out than the laws of physics. And the laws of physics are not easy, but, you know, but uh, the laws that, that, that rule human interaction are vastly more complicated uh, in that sense. Because yeah, that's, why, that's why I like theory and systems control theory and those kinds of things, because that's how you can sort of tease out, um, you know, how you can make it work but right now you know so far um mostly we figure out how to live with each other by trial and error you know? so we've we've slowly figured out over the course of centuries and millennia uh, how to better organize society so don't we ended not killing each other right so uh, we've made a lot of progress um but uh and we still have a lot, you know, we still have some progress to make. Is still there? Oh, the picture is gone. <laughs>